0: Turn with me then to Acts chapter 2, page 1094, just those, those few short but very dense verses. Father God, we'll come now to read of a time when the church met with your blessing in a wonderful way. Lord, we desire nothing more than to be a community of your people who are open to you and ready for you to work through us. Teach us now by your Spirit and by this written Word how how we can be your people in a way that pleases you and brings glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't get to meet up with other ministers very often, or certainly not as often as I would like. But when I do, I always enjoy the kind of conversation that we're able to have because when you're together with another minister, you have a sense that you're talking to somebody who understands this this weird and wonderful job uh, that you both share, this unique call that you, you both have. It's good to talk and, and encourage each other about what God's doing in our communities and, and encourage each other for the tasks and, and work that lies ahead. I find it interesting to talk to some of my colleagues in recent times since I've come to Kirkpatrick Memorial. Uh, lots of my peers' have heard in one way or another about the growth that we have been experiencing here. So they're, they're interested naturally enough to know how this has come about. And I suppose they're keen to work out what kind of a church we are, that we're experiencing this kind of growth. So more than a few times in the last years, I've been asked, what is it that's caused your church to grow? I find myself usually very hesitant to give any sort of an answer at all because I've realized I've no secret or technique to offer. I simply tell them about some of the things that that I hold dear in ministry and some of the biblical commands that I encourage this community to obey. And I can't help but think as I I share my answer and I look at the response that I, I sort of disappoint them. What is it that's caused your church to grow? I think it's an interesting question for any community of God's people to think about, and I think it's also the question that lies at the heart of our passage here this evening in the final verses of Acts chapter 2. The early church has just exploded onto the scene. A lot of the growth has already happened, actually. Flick back with me there to chapter 1, verse 15, We're we're looking here at a particular incident. Peter is gathering together with the believers somewhere in that 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. And we're told there that as Peter addresses this pre-Pentecost church, that there are about 120 people there. So that's a, a crowd a little bit bigger than our biggest evening service would ever be. That's the kind of scale that we're talking about. Flick down then to chapter 2, verse 41, the verse just before the passage we read this evening. It's a verse that describes the response to Peter's Pentecost sermon after he preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're told that 3,000 were added to their number that day. Okay? So 120 people, and one day later, or or within the space of a day, they moved to being 3,000 120 or or something a little bit more than that. There's been an explosion of growth in the church of Jesus Christ. To put this into context, the 120 seemed to be the community that emerged during three years of Jesus' physical walking the streets of this earth ministry. And then in one day, God in his his power and sovereignty chooses to add 3,000 to this church that exists after Jesus has ascended into heaven. I suppose that's one way of saying what was said a, a couple of weeks ago. We need to take seriously God's desire to work in the church even after Jesus had ascended into heaven. So with this influx now of 3,000 new members, the church of Jesus Christ is up and running. And in our passage this evening, in verses 42 to 47 of Acts 2, Luke simply describes this new community for us. I want you to notice just what he's doing here. I think all he's doing is describing it. He doesn't tell us, that every church should be like this. He doesn't say that we should slavishly try to replicate the early church. He simply tells us about their life together, and then he goes on to tell us that they flourished. I want to preach an Irish sermon this evening and start at the end. So if you jump down to verse 47, we'll use that as our starting point. We learn here that even after the 3,000 had been added, after the day of Pentecost, the church continued to grow. Luke tells us that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is a growing church. People are being saved, and they're joining the community. The thing that I found interesting here is the way in which Luke puts this over. When he talks about the growth... That was happening in this early church, he says that Jesus was doing it. The Lord Jesus Christ added to their number daily those who were being saved. Jesus, that is, who's recently ascended to heaven, but working now through his Spirit and his apostles, he's the one who's adding people to the church. Doesn't that change things significantly? I wonder if we maybe need to rethink our church growth question with which we started just a couple of moments ago. Instead of asking, what causes a church to grow? As in, what things can we do, ministers, elders, church leaders, to make a church grow? Might we be better to ask, what kinds of churches can the risen Lord Jesus use to draw people into his kingdom? In what kinds of churches can we expect the ascended Christ to work dynamically by His Spirit? I think that's the question that we ought to be asking in our churches in 2008. And I think it's a question to which we're going to get some answers in this passage here this evening. So let's go back now to the start of our passage and get stuck in and deal properly with this question before us. In what kinds of churches can we expect the risen and ascended Christ to be at work by His Spirit? Well, if you read verses 42 to 47 straight through, they read actually a little bit like a a list of activities that were taking place in the early church, and some of them probably overlap with each other. I counted about 11 or so. We find the early believers listening to teaching, being committed to fellowship, breaking bread, praying, being together, having their property in common, selling property in order to give to the needy, visiting the temple, eating in homes, praising God, and welcoming newcomers. There might be a slightly different way to read that. There might be slightly more or less, but it's, it's a list of activities. I said a moment ago that these verses are very, very well known in the church, and and there are all sorts of uh, approaches to how we might look at them this evening. Many of you will have heard of Rick Warren's very influential book, The Purpose-Driven Church. Well, he sees here five facets, which he said would be present in any growing church. He says the first Christians fellowshiped, they edified each other, they worshiped, they ministered, and they evangelized. So he sees here a mandate for the five purposes which he's championed to such effect in, in the church worldwide. Although I'm not totally into everything that, that Rick Warren concludes, I think he's about right. These these things that he's seen here are probably all present. But rather than looking at Rick Warren's scheme to look at these verses, I'm going to adopt and ADAPT, a four-fold framework used by John Stott in his Bible Speaks Today exposition of the passage. And more recently, he's used it in a, in a book, The Living Church, which I'd commend to you. Stott suggests that this passage shows us a learning church, a caring church, a worshiping church, and an evangelizing church. He's, actually, he's ruled the fellowship and the service that Rick Warren sees here into one and he's called them caring. Uh, And so he focuses on four different aspects instead of five. I'm going to shorten it again by one, and, and you're probably relieved to hear that. I'm going to focus on three. I'm going to focus on learning, fellowship, and worship. I'm going to leave out evangelism because I don't think Luke deals explicitly with that as an aspect of the church's work in this passage. I think Luke is making the point That when these other three aspects are present, this kind of community is inherently evangelistic. This is the community that God can use to reach the world. Uh, When we live as spirit-filled churches, we won't be able to stop people from from joining us, even if we wanted to. So let's look quickly at, at these three characteristics that that summarize these activities in the early church. The first one Luke selects is quite surprising. I wonder if it's even particularly surprising in our context. Luke says that a living or a growing church is a learning church. The believers scattered throughout Jerusalem were told devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and that is they devoted themselves to the teaching of Jesus Christ as now passed on through his apostles. Two weeks ago, when I began this series, I started with quite an awkward question. I said, how how do we follow Jesus Christ? How are we disciples of Jesus Christ whenever Jesus isn't here? And we discovered on that occasion in in Acts chapter 1 that God provides for us by giving us the spirit of Jesus and and by allowing us to open our lives in prayer to the spirit of Jesus. So we dealt with that quite awkward question. But there's another awkward question I see here in Acts 1 or Acts 2:42. How do we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? The apostles aren't here. Paul doesn't occupy any pulpit in Belfast. You'll be hard-pushed to find Peter or any of the others preaching anywhere near Ballyhackamore here. How, how, can, we, how can we replicate a, a, and follow in the footsteps of the early church at this point? How do we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? Well, I hope the answer's pretty obvious. The teaching of the apostles is what's recorded for us in the New Testament. None of it existed at the time uh, that that Luke's writing about here, but it it came into being later. The Gospels, the the, the writings of the apostles themselves. Here in Acts, we get a a record of what, what God did through his apostles as his Spirit worked through them. In Paul's letters and other letters of the New Testament, we get to hear from the apostles about the death and resurrection of Jesus. They interpret those events for us. They tell us what they mean. So how do we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? Well, we devote ourselves to the New Testament as given to us. And we submit ourselves to its authority. I couldn't come up with a better summary of this point than than the one that Stott gives in his, his book. He says that a living church is a learning church, a church submissive to the teaching authority of the apostles. Its pastors expound the Scriptures from the pulpit. Its parents teach their children out of the Scriptures at home, and its members read and reflect on the Scriptures in order to grow in Christian discipleship. Friends, this is why I've made it my first priority as your minister to teach you the Bible. You know, there's a lot of debate about what ministers should do with their time, which of the many activities of church life should be a priority. If somebody ever asks me what my job description is or or what I do, I think if I boiled it down for them, I'd say I teach a bunch of people on the Newtonards Road The Word of God. I do other things besides that, but that's what I do. If I do that, I do well. And if I don't do that, it doesn't matter what else I do, I do badly. Devoted to the Apostles' teaching. A growing church is a learning church. That's the first thing that Luke flags up for us here. If the first mark of this church is that it's a learning church and the second mark is its fellowship, Luke tells us that the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. There's a a famous Greek word underlying fellowship here. It's koinonia, which simply, it's actually not a very fancy word. It just means common, what we have in common. It's focusing on what the believers have in common. Their common life in Christ. Luke tells us what, in in later verses here, what a remarkable effect this common life of Christ had uh, on these early believers. He tells us that they were together and they had everything in common, selling their possessions and their goods. They gave to everyone as they had in need. These verses are wicked, aren't they? You know, we just wish they weren't there in the Bible sometimes because we want to obey the Bible and then we read this. You don't need this on a Sunday evening when you're trying your best to follow Jesus. What do these verses actually teach? We need to think about this for a second. Do these verses teach that to be a living and growing church, we need to be a commune? That we need to go home tonight, make an arrangement with the bank tomorrow, that we transfer all of our assets into the church account. Is that what these verses teach? Because if they do, and it's God's word teaching that, then we need to find out a way of obeying that. But if they don't, we may need to think about what's really going on here. Some Christian communities have taken this as literally as I've described it. They've come together and they've said, right, let's sell all our homes, let's sell all our stuff, uh, let's put it all in a big pot in the middle, and let's live out of that. But they've been the exception. I'm going to suggest just now that that isn't necessarily the best approach. Not all who follow Jesus are called to total voluntary poverty, and not even everyone in these verses actually sold all that they had and gave it to the poor. Look at verse forty six. We're told there that they broke their bread in homes. Homes? I thought they'd sold everything and given it to the poor, that sold their homes, that sold their furniture, that sold No, apparently not. More likely what Luke's describing here is a situation where no member of the community was ever seen stuck. If any member had a genuine need, then others would think nothing of giving sacrificially to help him out. Now here's here's what I think was going on. While each believer continued to hold their own property, they no longer regarded it as their own. Okay? Okay? So they administered their own property. They they managed it in the way that they always had before. But they recognized that from now on, their property belonged to Christ and therefore to the body of Christ. And that when the time came and when the moment arose, it was the most natural thing in the world to respond sacrificially and energetically to give and to sort out whatever situation needed to be sorted. Friends, we're not a commune here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. If you're new among us tonight, you might be relieved to hear that. If you're wondering who we are, we we are not. But, But let me tell you, there are people here who I think have understood exactly what Luke is talking about in chapter 2 and verse 42. I've seen how some people in our church life respond when they see other people stuck. I've seen how freely they sit with their own possessions so that they can help out anyone who is in need. It's, it's a wonderful thing to see. It's an inspiration I think it shows you in the end that God really is God in our lives when when our stuff isn't. Eugene Peterson gives a glorious vision for how churches could shine in a materialistic culture. He says, Every true Christian community is a training center in which we learn to discard our old habits of getting all we can for ourselves, And acquire new motives and means for giving all that we can to others. Folks, if he's right about that, if that's a sign of the true church, then I want to encourage you and say I've seen signs that just that training, that reprogramming is happening in our community. And I want to to encourage us to pursue that further still there's so much more we could say about about fellowship, but I I don't want to to take up all our time on this subject this evening. I thought I'd flag up just quickly two very practical applications. In his commentary on this passage, John Calvin picks up on this habit that the early believers had of eating together. And he says something that's very, very down to earth. He contrasts their eating together with elaborate and overblown types of hospitality. He says, they used to eat together and do so frugally for those who make sumptuous banquets do not enjoy such fellowship together in their meals. I, I think he's, he's got something right for us here. He's just reminded us that sometimes the best and the most down to earth and the most homely moments of fellowship aren't the ones with the fancy, elaborate five course meal. It's the times when we gather around a bowl of soup or a pizza or something that we've just lifted five minutes early from the Mandarin City or from Planet Spice. That it's not all about impressing each other with with our homes and, and what we can produce and what we can manage. And it's the being together. I think it's a, a, a lovely, lovely wee reminder. It's the being together that's important. The other thing that I wanted to say this evening about fellowship in the early church has to do with time. When you read these verses, you get the impression that they're not afraid to spend time together, these guys. They worshiped together, ate together, talked together, prayed together on a daily basis. It's no wonder that they grew close. I think it's very possible that we might decry the lack of community in our churches and yet not spend any time together. I think what, what happens is that we... We're nostalgic for this first-century community that's, that's described for us here, but we try to fit it into 21st-century schedules and timetables. And it doesn't work. Folks, I, I think this is something we need to take on board individually, and, and I'll leave you to, to dwell on that. But I also think it's something that we need to take on board as a congregation because collectively we have some control over how we spend time together. And I wonder if we give any time to the, the informal, the relational, or whether that stuff's always just an add-on to the, the programs and the institutional. Do we build in time when we can just be together. Because at the end of the day, I don't think we can do fellowship in a hurry. I don't think we can grow close unless we make this a priority in our church life. So the early church is a learning church. It's a fellowshipping or a caring church. And thirdly and finally for this evening, it's a worshipping church. Luke tells us again about the believers in the early church that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And in verse 46, he says, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Their worship is balanced, and it's balanced in a couple of different respects. Firstly, their worship is both formal and informal. It's interesting here, although I I don't know how much we understand of this, and it's something we need to keep our eye out for in Acts, something remarkable has happened to these guys. They're institutional Jews, brought up in the temple and in the synagogue. So the way they worshipped God had a particular shape. And now all of a sudden something dramatic has broken into that. And they're starting to do other things. But the interesting thing is that they never rush out of their institutional church. They kept going to the temple. Now, why did these guys keep going to the temple? Well, I think they kept going to the temple for the same reason that Luther tried to stay in the church of his day. They wanted to see their church, their church that was limited in its understanding of God and of Jesus Christ. They wanted to see their church changed. So they didn't just wash their hands of it, but they kept involved. So here we find that these early believers keep going along to the temple and stay involved in temple worship. At the same time, we read that they met in each other's homes around meal tables and that they remembered Jesus in less formal ways. And here we have a balance of formal and informal. You can probably see where my convictions lie if you have a look at how we're beginning to structure church life here in Kirkpatrick Memorial. I'm convinced that we'll be best served by a balance of both formal and informal. Our Sunday services tend towards the more formal, where we follow patterns, we follow orders of service. Things are somewhat similar from week to week. There's a formality there and a shape to all of that. But then we have midweek meetings, we have discipleship groups and home groups, we have sporadic ministries from time to time where it's much less predictable, or it's much less formal. Folks, I'd encourage you to see the blessing in both of those. Whoever you are, don't despise the other setting. If you're someone who's drawn to informality, don't, don't despise what God does in the structured, formal setting. If you're someone who, by your temperament, maybe loves the structure and the formality, please don't play down what God does in in the informal, in the gentler, quieter interaction of two or more believers together. Folks, I think it's when we, we recognize the strength in both of these that we'll be blessed in our worship. The worship in the early church was balanced in a second regard, I think. It it was joyful and it was reverent. You can almost get a tangible sense here of the joy in this community in in verse 46. I think the NIV is a wee bit flat here. In the message translation, Peterson gives it a bit more zip. He says, every meal was a celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praised God. Do you know it couldn't be any other way? It couldn't be. This community was built on the foundation of the apostles, the guys who had who had lived with Jesus, who had seen him killed but raised from the dead, who had promised that he would never leave them. This is the community on whom the spirit has fallen. These guys can't help it. They're, they're full of joy. And enthusiasm, it couldn't be any other way for them. Friends, I I don't know if I trust entirely a community of Jesus Christ where there's no joy. I don't know. I think something too fundamental is missing for that community to be healthy at all. We, we must be a community that's marked by joy. I, I, I love it, actually, in our church life how um, long before a church service starts, there, there'll be all sorts of uh, chat as people are catching up on, on the week that they have had together, just having fellowship together. I, I love those moments in our church services where often when we're singing, something happens and we just move up a step and, and a sense of joy kicks in. I love it when I look around after a service has ended. When people are taking time to to share life together, maybe to reflect on what what God has done in them and, and, and to encourage each other. This is all normal. It's something that I never, ever would dream of asking you to do. Because I believe that when the Spirit of God is in you, you'll want to share joyful lives together. How else could it be? The early believers, they, they were joyful, but, but they weren't flippant. Luke tells us uh, and we, we may have not, missed this as we skimmed through these verses He tells us in verse 43 that everyone is filled with awe. The spirit was at work. He was present in the community. And people recognized that that was no trivial thing. That this was not something that we take lightly. So here we have a community that seems to have this blend of joy and reverence. I've been, I've been thinking a lot about reverence as the joy has begun to well up in this community. And the paranoid in me has wondered, is the reverence going Are we losing our reverence? It's something I talk to other people about from time to time. And I've had to revisit what it means to be a reverent community. The community that I grew up in said that reverence had to do with the color and darkness of the clothes that you wore. It had to do with how absent joy was in your demeanor. It had to do with how silent the place of worship was. If those are the badges of reverence, we are failing badly. But I've been rethinking this a little. I rethink it almost every Sunday at about 10.59 in the morning or more like 11.02 because we never start on time. I get up there, usually in the pulpit, and I can't get people to be quiet. I don't try very hard, but I mean, it, it takes a moment. Is that a reverence issue? I don't think that it is. I'll tell you why. Once our service starts, and once we're agreed that it started, 11.02 or 03 or whatever. A silence descends. An expectancy. A desire to be involved in the praise when we sing together. An attention to God's word as we read it together and it's preached. And I go home and I thank God for the reverence that there is in this community. And it's a reverence that has nothing to do with wearing dark clothes together, with not smiling, or sitting silently before our services as though we're strangers to one another. It's a reverence that says, let God be God. We will worship Him and we will hear Him as He speaks to us and we long to respond to Him and change our lives. That I think, is the reverence that pleases God in the end. Friends, let's always be aware of this. Let's have a balance of joy and reverence, but let's not be drawn into the old stereotypes of what reverence is. Reverence is to give God his place, to let him be God and to be humbly before him. Let's do that. Let's keep doing that. Let's finish for now. We began by asking a question. In what kinds of churches can we expect to see the ascended Lord Jesus work today? I want to suggest, and what I think Luke implies in his passage, is that the growth of the early church was simply a result of their life. It was a result of these aspects that we've been talking about here this evening. These guys committed themselves to God's Word. As they did that, they were transformed into a a radical, loving community. As they met together, the sense of God's presence among them as they worshipped struck awe into any guests and visitors who joined with them. These aspects of the early church, I think, give us all the clues we need as to why God was able to add to their number daily those who were being saved. I think we have here all the clues that we need for our community about the kind of people that we must be if God is to add to our number often those who are being saved. Let's join together in prayer. Let's pray.